Hello and welcome to Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited. Over the coming weeks we hope to explore some of the thousands of reported cases of reincarnation and bring the discussion out into the light so that we can explore the possibility of what happens to our souls after death. But before we go too much further I'd like to thank Raphael Crux for allowing us to use his music from the freepd.com public domain music site. I have a very special guest to join us on the show today. I'd like you to welcome Robert L. Snow, who's a retired police officer who's written many books on police procedure, which are such a good read. And if you're into true crime, I recommend you check them out on Amazon.com. But today he's here to discuss with us his book about his discovery of a past life. Robert investigated his own past life memories in the hope of proving to himself that reincarnation doesn't exist, but found the end result surprising. So thanks for joining us today, Robert. I really can't wait to share this story with my listeners. It's so fascinating. Thank you for inviting me. You're most welcome. I, I was really hoping I could get you to come on because I just was absolutely blown away when I heard your story. One, one interesting fact that came up about the book was that you graduated from Indiana University with a summer come lord in psychology and criminal justice. So you've obviously always had an interest in law and justice, yet when you became a police officer, you sort of fell into it. Was that originally what you wanted to make your career? And how did you become a police officer and how long were you in the force? No, actually, I never wanted to be a police officer. That thought never entered my mind uh, growing up. The only thing I ever wanted to be, and from this is my earliest memories of maybe four or five, I always wanted to be a writer. It, that was to me that that was the goal I wanted to reach in my life to be a, a professional writer. Now, police work, you know, just again, one of these things. I was in the military during the Vietnam War, and I did my four years. And once I got discharged, I came home. You know, and it's nice to, you know, want to be a writer. But, you know, very few writers ever start out making any kind of money at all. You have to have some other employment before you can be a writer. You, it takes a lot of years before you can make some money. So I need, I need a job when I get out of the military. Well, my brother was a police officer in the Annapolis Police Department, and I was looking for a job. He said, hey. They're desperate right now because, you know, all the able-bodied men are in Vietnam or in the military, and they're really looking for recruits. So I went down and joined, with, not with the idea I was going to stay for a long time, but just it was a good-paying job, and it paid pretty well. And, I, you know, the first six months was all in school, and I always did really well in school. I thought, well, I could just go down there for a while, you know, make some money, then perhaps get into my writing, you know, getting my idea about being a writer. But you find something interesting about police work. Police work is as addictive as heroin. It, once, you, <laughs> once you experience police work... It really gets into your system. You you can't let it go. You really oh, it, it is could, addi tremendously addictive. <laughs> so I could I had, believe that actually. I think it must be an amazing job. It it really was, and I was there for thirty eight years. So obviously, my idea of a short stint there didn't work out. But <laughs> I, I was I, I was there for thirty eight years. And I served a lot of places. I retired. I was a captain. So I was in charge of the homicide branch there for a number of years. I was in charge of the organized crime branch. I was the police department executive officer, a captain detective, and another a bunch of other jobs. But it just again, police work was just something I fell into. But actually, it turned out to be very fortuitous because I wanted to always want to be a writer. But to be a writer, you got to have something to write about and something interesting. And I found that police work is something many, many people are interested in. And so all 20 of my published books are about police work, basically. I mean, they're about what things I experienced and things I found out about when I was a policeman. So finding this job, falling into police work turned out to be very fortuitous for me because it gave me a lot of subject matter to write yeah. about. Yeah, I'm a bit of a true crime junkie myself. So um, I think we share that interest. You were in the force and that's really what got your writing happening. And it sounds like while you were working as a police officer that you were actually writing at the same time. So how did you find the time to actually be able to do both? Because both are both time intensive procedures. You know, if you're really serious about being a writer, you want to be a professional writer, you don't find time. Because if you think you'll do it when you find time, you never will. You have to make time. 
I didn't do golfing. I didn't do bowling. I didn't do a lot of things. All my free time was taking up writing. And that's what, what you're going to do. If you want to be a serious writer, you can't just say, well, I'll do one hour every Friday night. You got to do it every night and you got to just simply make time. You just have to say, I'm going to do it, period, and just sit down and do it. And again, this finding time is a nice idea, but you will never find time. Something will always come up if you try to find time. You simply have to simply make time. And that's what I did. I just, every night I wrote for a couple hours. I started writing in 1975 and I've been writing every day since then. Oh, that's really good advice, actually. I, I used to write a little bit too, and you've become the master of procrastination. So it's a, a good idea to set time aside. I think that's wise advice for anyone out there who wants to write. So you were the police captain in charge of the LaSalle murder case, which fascinates me. I've heard of that case before. And anyone who's interested in reading Robert's book, you should, because it'll keep you on the edge of your seat. There's a lot of twists and turns, and it's called uh, Slaughter on North LaSalle. What did the other detectives think of you being a crime writer? And did they read your books? Yeah, from the staff, as other officers, I got a lot of good support. You know, being a professional writer is not that common. And so everybody around the police department knew that I was writing books. Got some real good positive feedback. Now, the only one I didn't get positive feedback from, not from the officers, from the chief staff, was my book on Beckwith, the one we're talking about. That got a very negative response from the chief and the chief staff. I can understand where they're coming from in a way. They don't really want a command rank officer talking about reincarnation. Police captains particularly are supposed to be the bedrock of the department. You are the backbone of the department. And have one of their captains go out and publish a book about reincarnation is really not what they saw as proper behavior for a police captain. So I ran into quite a bit of negative response from the chief and his staff when my book came out. It's interesting that though, isn't it? Because as you say in the book, you had so much actual evidence that if this had been a police crime, you could have convicted it easily. It's just so provable. And yet it's almost like there's like a knee-jerk fear of even discussing the subject. It's quite interesting, isn't it? Well, I think the problem was, I don't think a lot of the chief or the command staff read my book. I think they knew about it, heard about it. I appeared in a number of local you know, magazines and the newspaper, and I think that's where they got their whole feeling for the book. And so it's one thing to have proof that they didn't really get a chance to read it all or consider it all. It just took a negative turn when I published this book. My police career took a negative turn. I kind of knew it would. I really expected it. I, I wasn't terribly surprised, but it took a very negative turn when I actually came out with this book. I suppose I can sort of understand it in a way because, as you say, like being a police officer is about respectability and reliability. And I suppose it's more the image, isn't it, of, well, what are people going to think of us if we embrace it? But it's a shame that that's the attitude out there because uh, I think it creates a disability to be able to talk about it, I suppose. Well, you know, reincarnation is really not a Western belief anyway. And so it's more a Far Eastern belief. And so to have a police captain talking about that, it sounds like you're almost, you're going over the edge here. They, they, I think they worried about my stability once I, when I published the book. And uh, that's what basically led to all the kind of blowback on it. Yeah, it's a shame, isn't it? Because it's, it's a great book. I wish they'd read it. It's really good. So to bring the subject around now to your past life experience, you initially sort of encountered it a bit reluctantly in a way, didn't you? Would you mind yeah. sort of telling us how that came about? Well, actually, you know, to be a writer, you also have to be a reader. You just can't be a writer all the time. You have to do a lot of reading, too. And you can't just read from your area what you write about. You have to read from all areas. Because you're reading something and you say, boy, that's really well done. You know, So you have to look at it and say, what does writer do that makes this writing so good? And so you have to read from every area, not just police work. Well, because of this, I belonged to a member of book clubs years ago. And one month they offered a book called Coming Back by a Dr. Raymond Moody. Dr. Mm -hmm. Moody had written uh, some previous books on uh, 
near-death experiences. Well, this book, Coming Back, was a book about, he had a friend who was a psychologist who did past life regression therapy, which is a therapy that psychologists and psychiatrists use. Sometimes the people will have a physical problem, such as a pain somewhere or some kind of problem they can't use a limb properly, but the medical doctors can find absolutely no reason for it. And sometimes they will send a person to a past life regression therapist, and this person will hypnotize them and take them back to a supposed past life. And almost always the first past life they come to involve this injury or this, this pain or this disability. They'll find something happened in this past life that caused it. Mm-hmm. And they found that just reliving this through a past life regression, through hypnotism, it will cure whatever problems they have. Just by going back to it and talking about it and discussing it, reliving it, can cure it. So I talked to a number of psychologists and psychiatrists after I wrote this book, and majority of them, I think, don't believe this is real. They believe that the illness, the person who's suffering is psychosomatic, and so is the cure. And actually, after reading Dr. Moody's book, what happened, Dr. Moody had a friend, a psychologist, who did past life regression, and she persuaded him to undergo past life regression, and he did it. He went back to those eight past lives. He's a very good writer. The book was very interesting, and he explained about these eight past lives in his book, what he saw, what hypnosis. At the very last of the book, he kind of hedged it. Like I said, he didn't really believe there were true past lives. So he thought, nah, he kind of wanted for just repressed memories from this life or maybe even just his imagination. And after I read the book, that's kind of what I thought. I thought, well, this is all interesting, but I didn't believe in past lives. And so I, so I read the book and I just basically kind of forgot about it. I went on to other reading. Well, several months later, I'm at a party. My wife is also a police officer. At that time, she worked at the Child Advocacy Center. She was a child abuse detective. And they were having a Christmas party. And so I went with her to the Christmas party. And at the party was a woman who works at the police department. She's a police detective, but also a psychologist. You know, I didn't know at the time, but she does past life regression therapy in her practice. So anyway, her and I are just talking about, you know, movies we'd seen and, you know, trying to make a chit chat. We started talking about books she read. And I remember this book by Dr. Moody. And I mentioned it to her that I read it. And she asked me what I thought about it. And I really kind of belittled the whole idea. At that time, I thought past life regression was silly. It wasn't anything but just your own imagination or maybe some kind of buried subconscious memories that you're reordering to make it look like a past life. So I kind of belittled it. Now, I didn't know at the time that she used it in a profession. I think I kind of ticked her off. So at the last, she said, well, if you think it's a phony, why don't you try it and see if you really think it's phony? I wasn't going to do that. But then she got to the point, oh, you're scared? You're scared to do it. Now, you don't want to ask a police officer or a man if he's scared. Of course, you're going to say no. So I ended up agreeing to do this. So she gave me a card with a name of a colleague of hers who did pass our guest. And she said, well, go see her and have it done. Then tell me what you think. So I took the card and all. And the next day I wake up and I'd had a little drink at the party. Next day you're a clear head saying, I'm not going to do this. You know, it's silly. But then I seem like every day almost, I run into the psychologist. Before this, I swear, I didn't run into her maybe once every month or two. And see, back then, I just, every day I'd run into her, and she'd ask me, said, have you made deployment yet? Have you called Dr. Griffith? This was the lady she referred me to. And, and I had to make some kind of flimsy excuse about, you know, been busy and all this kind of stuff. But see, like, every time I turned around, there she was. God, it just got awful. You'd see her, you want to turn around and run down to the way, but you couldn't do that, you know? So finally, I got down to the last, you know, I go, this is silly. I'm not going to be hiding from people. So I went ahead and called Dr. Griffith and made the appointment. That's basically how I got talked into doing past life regression. Can you describe the regression for us and what you went through? Well, I went to Dr. Mary Ellen Griffin. For a nice lady. She had an office at Northside Annapolis, and I went to her office, welcomed me into the office and had me sit down. We talked for a little bit and all, and I decided on the way there, I was kind of ticked off because I thought I got forced into doing this. So what I did, I brought my own recorder along, 
I was going to record all this so I could, could tell us I got done and nothing happened, which is what I assumed was going to happen. I could call the psychologist and say, see, now I tried this and absolutely nothing happened. It's, it's phony. So I brought my recorder along and Dr. Griffith didn't have any problem with that. So we sit down, her and I talked for a while. And finally she said, okay, are you ready to start? I said, sure. So she had me sit on this couch she had and close my eyes. And she said, okay, now imagine a balloon. Well, it's kind of like my eyes closed. I could see a big purple blob, but I knew in my, in my closed eyes, but I knew it was just the sunlight coming through the window to my right and everything. I told her, yeah, I can see a purple balloon and everything. She said, okay. She said, now imagine you're in the balloon and you're taking, and you're rising up real high above the earth. Again, I'm operating to everything Dr. Griffith says. So later I can tell the psychologist, see, you were wrong. It's just stupid. So anyway, she said, now, can you see the lights down below you? Interesting enough, it did look like, and by my vision, little points of light, but I, I figured that would just you know, glare off the tile floor in her office. So she's telling me, You're, we're floating on balloon and everything. And she says, okay. She says, let's take the balloon down and land somewhere and see what's there. So I said, okay. But, you know, it's happened probably a dozen times. Nothing really happened. She's telling me, take the balloon down. Nothing happened. Nothing. And she said, she finally said, okay, now there's a control for your head. Pull the control, the balloon go down. And again, <laughs> absolutely nothing happened. And I'm thinking to myself at the moment, well, this is exactly what I thought. This is all, you know, it's just a suggestion from the psychologist. It's not real. We went through it at least a dozen times and nothing happened. She finds out, okay, no problem. You obviously don't want to land these places. She says, now, can you see a mountain? Now, this time I've been sitting on the couch for a while and I had been moving. It's kind of a hard couch. I was kind of sore. Now, I can see in my mind a mountain, I, but I knew it wasn't a real mountain. It was just, you know, just your imagination. So I said, yeah, okay, I can see a mountain. She said, okay, let's land on the mountain. So, so actually, I, I figured I must be getting really tired because my mind was starting to cooperate. And I saw the balloon land on the mountain and said, okay, get out. She says, what do you see? funny in my imagination I could see a log cabin but interesting enough the logs weren't going horizontally they were going vertical I didn't find out until months later so that was actually the French method for building a log cabin but anyway so she said okay yeah we go with the cabin says and just look there's all there's food for you and a meal and I'm thinking okay okay I know right now this is just my imagination just nothing happened so anyway after we we're in the cabin well, she says okay now so I want you to go there's a valley and I want you to walk down these steps into the valley I'm trying to be cooperative. I'm thinking at the moment, boy, I am so stupid for getting involved in this. I should never have come here. You know, can you feel like an idiot sitting on this couch? You know, just imagining things. She's telling you, imagine, but nothing's really happening. So anyway, she said, walk down the steps. We'll count the steps. So she starts counting the steps, you know, 12, 11. But it's funny. It's, each time she counts a number, it gets longer. And, you know, it goes 10, 9. I'm thinking, oh, God, this is so ridiculous, you know. So, it's you know, it's kind of like the things you see in the movies thing. I'm thinking, oh, man. So anyway, by the time she gets down to one, all of a sudden, something really bizarre happened. All of a sudden, I was in a valley. I don't mean I was imagining I was in a valley or I could, you know, just see a, a picture of a valley in my mind. I was in a valley. And it was really, it was frightening at first, but not terrified because I knew I could still feel the couch underneath me and I could still hear movement outside the window of Dr. Griffith's office. But at the same time, I was in a valley. The valley was crystal clear. In fact, I looked over, at a, there were some leaves. You could see the veins in the leaves. But funny enough, I could see the leaves moving. I could feel a breeze in my face. At the moment, I just kind of dismissed that. I figured that, no, that's just the air conditioning zones, all that. So anyway, so, we're, so I'm walking along this valley, and, and Dr. Chris said, okay, look down. She said, what are you wearing? I looked down, and I could see some really matted, really dirty fur and bare feet. And I looked at my left hand. I was carrying part of a tree limb. Now, everybody's seen movies and TV programs. You know what a caveman is. I mean, that's what it was. And I thought, this is just movie stuff. I, this is a movie I've seen somewhere. And all that. So I tell her what I see and all that. She said, okay. She says, now look around. Do you recognize anything? And it was kind of bizarre because all of a sudden 
I didn't know. Bob Snow didn't know where he was at, but the person body I was inhabiting did know. And I told Dr. Griffith, I live here. I live on a cave up on the side of this, uh, this valley. And the funny thing, I'm starting to say things, and I say it before I know what I'm going to say. It just kind of blurts out. I didn't know I was going to say it. She said, okay, let's go to the cave. Go in and look. And it was kind of funny because when I walked into the cave, I smelled this awful stench. Whoever this person lived in this cave was, wasn't very hygienic. I thought how bizarre that was. I, mean, I might have thought they breathed by air conditioning. I had no idea where the smell came from, this awful smell. So anyway, she took me through this life, and they finally saw me die. And she asked me, said, what did you learn from this life? And again, I started talking before I knew I was going to say anything. And I told her that I didn't have anybody in this life. I was lonesome the whole life, and I really wasn't good. And she said, okay. She said, now you see a big light over the valley. And I looked up, and sure enough, it was a big bright light over the valley. And she said, well, go into the light. Go into the light and go to a life when you had someone. I thought, well, okay. This is actually kind of fun, you know, because this is so realistic that the hypnosis part so realistic. It was kind of like being on an LSD trip without the danger of drugs. It was just that vivid. And I thought, wow, I was kind of enjoying it. It was kind of like being on the greatest ride you've ever on in an amusement park. You know, you can see how things like virtual reality and all that things look real, but you know they're really not, but they sure do look real. But I was enjoying it. So anyway, so I go up to the light and there's about, oh, about four or five seconds. It's up like I'm in a gray fog. Then all of a sudden I'm out and I see I'm walking on the street and it's really warm. I can feel the sun on my face. I look down and I'm wearing a really nice suit and I have a walking stick. It was a cane, but not really a cane. It wasn't a cane because I was crippled or anything. It was like a walking step and I'm, and I'm walking down the sidewalk. And I look around and I'm in a big city. There's just huge buildings all around me, all around where I'm walking. And so Dr. Griffith asked me to describe where I'm at and I do that. She said, where are you going? And I said, I'm going to meet a woman. So she said, okay. She said, I'll go on to that. So I meet a woman. It's a really beautiful woman wearing a red dress. And we walked to a sidewalk cafe. And Dr. Griffith asked what we ordered. She ordered, the woman ordered some kind of special water. And I ordered a glass of wine. So doctor said, okay. We go two years then in the future, see what happens. So the next scene, I'm in the hallway. And I'm arguing with a woman. Just having a really strong argument about something. And I finally just stop the argument and walk away. And I walk into a room. And it's an artist studio. The whole ceiling is skylights, and the whole one wall is solid windows. And the walls are just covered with dozens and dozens of paintings, obviously unsold paintings. And, and like with the caveman, I suddenly start seeing things and recalling things, not from Bob Snow, but from the person whose body I'm inhabiting. And I knew at that time that I was a painter. Not a terribly successful one from the look of all the ones hanging on the walls that, that weren't sold, but I knew that I was a painter. That's what I did with my life. So anyway, we talked about that for a while, and she said, okay, go five years in the future. What do you see? So I go five years, and all of a sudden, I'm at this party, and everybody's congratulating me and shake my hand, pat me in the back. I have no idea what, I've, what I'm being congratulated for what I'm doing, but obviously, I've done something good because the party was for me, and everybody's congratulating about something. I said, fine. She said, all right, I want you to go to your death. I said, I want you to go to your death and tell me what you see. So I see myself laying in this bed, and then I rose up out of it. Everybody knows that ghosts always just lift up out of the body. Everybody's seen that movies and TV programs know that. So I saw myself lift out of the body, and I go through the roof of this building. And I'm looking around. I'm in the middle of a huge city. There's huge. There's lights for miles in all directions. And Dr. said, okay, now, what did you regret about this life? And I said, I regret we didn't have children because my wife couldn't have children. She said, okay. So she said, now I want you to go into the light. So there's a light, but I didn't do it which is kind of interesting, but people always think when you're hypnosis that you have to do exactly what the hypnotist says. That's really not true. You really know what's going on 
you aren't really under that person's power because she told me to go into light and I didn't. Instead, I saw myself passing through some woods and I could tell that it was a kind of a fall, kind of a late fall day because the leaves, the trees still had leaves, but it was a cold, brisk night. And next thing I know, I'm at this big mansion and I'm looking in a window on the second or third floor. And there's room, there's a big roaring fire, but nobody's in the room. But over the fireplace is one of my paintings. It was a still life. And Dr. Griffith actually, she kept saying, go to the light. And I said, no, not yet. But she asked me, what are you doing? I said, before I left this life, I want to see one of my paintings again. So finally, after that was over, Doc, I finally went to the light. Dr. Griffith said, okay, I want you to go back to your life when you were a female. And I kind of chuckled to myself. I said, yeah, that's going to happen. Well, it did. So the next life, after about, again, about four or five seconds of kind of a gray fog, also, I'm in another body. And I looked down, I could see it's a young girl's body. And now that was a kind of a stunning moment because I really, because I think I'm trying to cooperate with Dr. Griffith, but I'm still thinking this is just old repressed memories from this life that you've kind of twisted and reordered and everything to make it look like a story. But I don't, I can imagine my memories of me being a girl, which is kind of funny. But then, that, but also like in the previous one, I started knowing things that this person knew. So I was into some woods, but it wasn't the woods of the valley. This was all very flat and different kind of trees. And I was staying in front of, a, it was like an altar. It was a big circular structure with pillars all around it. And I realized that I this is where this is where I worked, that my job was taking care of this altar, that me and a bunch of other girls would bring stuff down to the altar. The interesting is this, this life that she told me to describe myself. And I said that, well, everyone, all the girls here are pretty and all there has to be virgins to take part in ceremonies at the, at the altar. So I, we talked about it for a while. Then she said, okay, I want you to go through five years in the future. So five years, I go, and again, here's a couple of moments of the gray fog. And all of a sudden I see myself, I'm in a wagon that's being pulled by oxen. And there's an old man sitting left to me. And to my right, I look down and there's a little girl. And I know in the life of this person I'm inhabiting, this is my daughter. But interesting enough, it was, it was, it was a, somebody I recognized from this life. It was my stepdaughter from this life as a little girl. Mm -hmm. It's the same age she was when I married her mother. It just kind of caught me by surprise. It was her. So Dr. Griffith asked what happened. I'm saying, well, obviously I wasn't a virgin anymore. So the, the, the uh, temple either sold or gave me to this old man. So anyway, he takes us to a, a great big farm he owned, but he died real soon afterwards. And so there I'm kind of left on my own after he died, needless to say. And so I take my daughter back to the temple and I give her to the temple to use as one of the older girls. And the interesting part is I know in my mind at that moment that I'm not, I kept trying to tell Dr. Griffith, I'm trying to explain to her how, what a great opportunity was for my daughter doing good by doing this for her. That I was, I was actually helping her and all this kind of stuff. But by my own mind, I knew what I was doing was abandoning her because it'd be hard to take care of her me both. When you're a woman in the world, this was, you know, back in ancient Greece, back in probably, you know, six, 700 BC. And it'd be awful hard for a woman unattached woman to take care of a little child and yourself too. You knew exactly what I was doing. I was abandoning her. I was basically giving her up so she wouldn't be a burden to me. And I felt this tremendous guilt. And I, I remember thinking at the moment how silly this was because I thought this is not true. This is just, you know, something you're making up. But I felt this awful, awful guilt sitting on me. Like, it was like a concrete block on my chest. And I kept trying to tell Dr. Griffin how this was a, you know, this was a real honor. I'm really helping her. But I knew in my mind this wasn't true, that I was banning her. So finally, the doctor said, okay, I go to your death. And I saw myself in a village. It was a fishing village. And I had got caught up in a net in the fish thing. And I was drowned. And at the faint a moment, I could taste salt water. And I thought it was really bizarre. But uh -huh. I could taste salt water in my throat. So anyway, Dr. Griffith finally brought me out of this life. And I thank, thank God. Because not only the drowning was bad, but the worst part of the guilt. 
She said, okay, now I want you to go to your most previous past life. Go to the life you were before you were Bob Snow. And I was really glad for that one. I want to get out of this life. This, this one little girl was a terrible life. So anyway, there was four or five seconds of, of the gray fog. And all of a sudden, I find myself in the life. But I know exactly who I am. I'm back in the painter's life again. I'm, it's the same person I was in the previous reincarnation. But the interesting, at the moment, I'm in my studio. I'm painting a portrait. But the interesting part wasn't I was painting a portrait of a hunchback woman. I thought how bizarre that was at the moment. You know, I'm, look, I'm looking at this woman, and I, the painting was just about done. I was just doing the last strokes. And I, and I tell Dr. Griffin, I'm painting a portrait. I hate painting portraits. I hate them, but I need the money. I really need the money. So anyway, Dr. we went through this scene. I described the woman to her and all this. And she said, okay, go five years in the future. So the next scene, I'm in a, having a big, vicious argument with someone about uh, the lighting for my painting. My painting is an exhibition somewhere, and I'm, I'm upset about lighting of it. So anyway, so we're going to another scene. So I'm, I'm going to the gray fog, another scene, and I say something. And I didn't know I, didn't know I was going to say it. I just kind of spit it out. I said, they said she died of a blood clot. The doctor said she died of a blood clot. Now, at the moment, I had no idea who I was talking about, who this woman was who died of a blood clot. But I knew that she was very, very important to this person because I felt like crying. It was really bizarre because I, I'm thinking to myself, I don't know who this person is. Bob, this is all your imagination. But at the moment when I said she died of a blood clot, I felt like I wanted to cry. Well, I told you I had brought a tape recorder along. And all of a sudden, at that moment, it clicked off with a real loud click. And I opened my eyes, and it was over. That was that. The regression was done. Wow. Now, now, for a few moments, I'm kind of embarrassed because I'd come in there so sure this is all but stupid. I would really didn't think I could be hypnotized. I really didn't. I thought there's no way the person hypnotized me. I'm, I'm much too strong for that. So I was really flustered at the end because I'd been sitting there, you know, I just felt so so sure at the first. And now I've, I've been blabbered like an idiot for the last 30, 40 minutes. <laughs> I didn't know what to do or say at that time. Dr. Griffiths told me, he said, well, okay, Bob, do you see how any of this stuff relates to your life today and all this stuff? And I really couldn't. At the moment, I was just too flushed. I wanted to get out of there. I didn't know what to say. So I just told her, well, I don't have to think about it. I don't really know now. So I wrote her a check and got out of there real fast. Wow. That's, that's just amazing, though. I mean, what an experience to go through. And as you say, you experienced so much actual real sensation, real emotion and real, like the feeling of the wind on your face. I found that when I first read that, I was like, that's just amazing. That, that well, I didn't realize what I had is called a full sensory regression. Right. A full sensory regression. I could smell the cave. I could taste the salt water. And that I didn't realize that's very, very rare. It doesn't happen very often at all. I didn't have any idea at the time. I didn't know anything about hypnosis or think a past life regression. So I didn't realize at the time how very rare it is to have a full sensory regression. Yeah, that's that's incredible. I've never heard of uh, such a detailed sort of case of it. I've heard of people having regressions, and um, I think the fact of the emotion of it, it makes yours just so much more intense and so much more um, believable, even from this point, before you then go on to um, find all of the information that proves it. It's um, quite fascinating to, to hear you talking about it. You then went on after that, and you decided to investigate it a little bit. Is that? Well, I wasn't going to. At first, you know, I, I went out to Macar, if this is over, a doctor, the session over, etc. for a while thinking. I'm trying to figure this all out. Because the problem was not the regression. The problem was the clarity of it. It was so clear. It was, just, it was like life. It was true life. In a dream, you know, everything's kind of blurry and fuzzy. And, and you know, and this one, I could look at a leaf and see all the veins in the leaf. I, it was just so crystal clear that it bugged me. You can't think, where could this have come from? 
So I told myself, well, I'm just going to forget about it. But again, this is nothing really. It's an imagination, maybe some old memories from your subconscious you've brought up, maybe movies you've seen and things like this. You reordered and make a story out of it type thing. So I tried to let it go. But this thing had a grip on me. It just bugged me. And I started thinking about it and think about it constantly. Every day I'd think about it a hundred times. It's interesting, for the first couple of years after aggression, I could close my eyes and still see things with complete clarity. I could still see the portrait of the hunchback woman. I could still close my eyes for the first couple of years and see every single brush stroke. And so that really bugged me. It got to be so bad that I could see that I was becoming obsessed by this. And one thing I learned in 38 years as a police officer, people with serious obsessions, it seldom turns out good. It really does. If you don't do something about it, having a really serious obsession about something seldom has good results. And I knew I had to do something to get this off my mind because I said for weeks and weeks, I couldn't think of anything but this. I finally decided, well, what I need to do to break this is to find painting the hunchback woman or find the still life I saw in the mansion. Now, if I could find them, then I figured I would remember exactly where I saw them before. Did have these paintings this clear? I had to see him someplace in this life and just forgot about him. I'd seen him somewhere, you know, maybe read a little blurb about the artist, but because it was not that important, just forgot about it. But my subconscious mind hadn't. They still remembered it. I thought that, that was what happened is that it was basically the subconscious mind bringing these memories up. You see these paintings. So I thought if I can find the paintings, then I'll remember where I saw them and I'll see who they're by or saw them and then it'll all be clear. So this is just repressed memories from your subconscious. And so I made a decision to find them. Now, this was 1992. Before the internet, you could just put, you know, hunchback woman painting in a search engine and find it. In those days, the only way you did research, you had to go to the library and pull books off the shelf. So what I did is I went to the public library, went to the art section. From the, the buildings I had seen, and I remember there was a horse-drawn carriage going down the street. And they had gas lights on the street while I was walking on. So I knew this was probably the late 1800s. And I figured it was in New York, some big city. In the 1880s, a huge city where I lived in. So I thought, well, I need to find a painter from the 19th century, you know, so I could find these paintings. So I went to that public library and started going through their art books. I had no idea. I got hundreds of art books there. But I sat down and went through every single art book in the public library to look for these paintings. Couldn't find them. Again, now this is really starting to bug me. I thought, come on. I figured they had to be halfway famous or I would have remembered them. I mean, they had to be my halfway famous. I looked for weeks and weeks and couldn't find. I went to every book and I started visiting bookstores because a lot of times bookstores have more recent copies and different type of art books. I couldn't find them. And I even called a number of galleries around Indianapolis, described the paintings to them, see if they knew about them. But the interesting thing back this, of course, this again is 1992 and there was no, there was no internet. So this time there was no central listing of paintings anywhere. Now, if you were on a painting by a very famous person, it'd be easy enough to find. If you want to buy a painting by a not a famous person, you were kind of in trouble. It would really be hard to find. The only thing you do is start calling art galleries and see if they knew where I was at. So it basically got down. I just basically kept investigating and investigating, did everything I could do. I even went to a uh, new age bookstore because I wanted to see, okay, maybe I didn't understand what happened during this regression. Maybe if I, I read up on past life regression, I can understand what happened, where this all come from. But I didn't. But here's enough. One of the books had a script. It's kind of like Dr. Griffith's, a lot of imagery on how to do self-hypnosis. Now this sounds good, but let me tell you something, this is a lot harder than you think. <laughs> so I tried self-hypnosis and only once or twice, I think maybe twice, I could feel myself going into the same state I was in Dr. Griffith's office, right? You could feel yourself going under, but it would last maybe two seconds and I'd see the number 1917. Then it'd be like a little bloom popping, it'd be gone. I saw this twice. 
get this big long dialogue thing of, of self-hypnosis, then I'd see one nine one seven. So finally, I tell you, you know, I tell you, I, tell you, I, I was uh, in charge of the homicide branch. I was commander of the homicide branch for a number of years in Indianapolis. When I was in charge, we had an eighty-three percent clearance rate, which is really, really exceptional for a large city. That still means that seventeen percent of our murders every year went unsolved. Most time they go unsolved because there's nothing, there's no evidence to follow up on, and that's basically how I felt this was going to be. I couldn't think of what else to do. I couldn't think of another avenue to go that would help me with this case. So I thought the only thing you do is like we do in Indianapolis. You have a murder case that's unsolved, you'd put it on the shelf. Now, you don't just discard it. You put it on the shelf, and it's inactive. But any time you get new evidence, you can reopen it. And I thought, well, that's what I'm going to do with this case. I'm just going to have to let it go because there's nothing else I can do. And so I, I tried that, and boy, it did work real well. It still kept coming up in my mind all the time. I still couldn't do it. It just drove me nuts. I'm not surprised because it was, it was such an intense experience, isn't it? So how did you then actually find it from that point when you were sort of basically stymied? Well, again, I tried for several months just to forget about it, just move on my life, but it didn't work real well. But anyway, it got around time for my wife and my anniversary, and she wanted to go somewhere for the anniversary, someplace neither of us had ever been. So she called me one day at work and says, hey, what do you think about New Orleans? I thought, well, that's only fun. I've never been to New Orleans in East Virginia. I thought that'd be a fun place. Our anniversary is in April, so it'd be a good time to go down there. You know, be, be, you know, still be, it would be real hot yet, and probably the mosquitoes wouldn't be in full force down there. So we saw that's not good. So we made reservations, we made a trip, we went down to, went down to uh, New Orleans, and we had a good time. We had a really, my wife's a history buff, boy, New Orleans. You can't walk or turn around without stumbling on the history down there. So we had a really good time. But interesting enough, we used to go into the French Quarter at nighttime, listen to the bands and all that, and have a good time. But on the way into the French Quarter, I noticed there's all kind of really neat stores, uh, memorabilia stores, antique stores, various things. They're always closed. When her and I went out at nighttime to go listen to the bands in the French Quarter. So the last day, our plane didn't leave till late afternoon. So we had the, most of the day to find something to do. And I told her, what do you think we go window shopping in the French Quarter? We looked at shops. And she thought it was a good idea. So we started doing that. Boy, they had some really neat stuff there. They had some really neat antique stores and memorabilia stores and what have you. And we finally got under Royal Street. And Royal Street was mostly art galleries there in uh, New Orleans. And so we started, you know, we started going through the art galleries, and they had some beautiful, beautiful paintings there. It's kind of interesting. As you started going down the street, I noticed the galleries were getting smaller and the painters more obscure. So we finally got to a gallery at the end of the Royal Street there, and it was a two-story. And we went in, and they had a sign that said, Modern Art Upstairs. My wife, man, I'm not. She is a fan of modern art. So she went upstairs to look at it. And I start walking along the first floor. And I'm looking at the paintings. I don't recognize any of the paintings. I don't recognize any of the artists. But it, I just enjoy myself and looking. So I get down to the first corner and I'm starting to make a turn. And there's a portrait sitting on a easel at the end of the corner. And I gave it a glance, started to walk away. And it's like I walked into a glass wall. I stopped so suddenly. I turn around and look. Who's the portrait of the hunchback woman? That's amazing. Now, now, I'll tell you something. I was a police officer for 38 years. I ran into a lot of frightening situations, but none of them as frightening as this. I mean, what do you do? I mean, it's one thing to see this thing on the TV or in movies, you know, you see the X-Files or some science fiction movie, you can see this sort of thing. But what happens in real life if something like this happens? I didn't know what to do. Now, as a police officer, you get in a lot of dangerous situations, but you have training and you have experience on what to do. And you know what the proper response would be. This one, I had no, I had say no idea what to do. At first, I tried to tell myself, no. This is not the painting. It looks like the painting. It's close, but it's not it. I could close my eyes and still see the painting. I closed my eyes, looked at the painting, and opened my eyes, and I knew it was the painting. Now, I'm trying to run through all kinds of explanations in my mind what's going on. This is not happening. They may happen in movie and books. They don't happen in real life. 
And they don't happen to people who spent their whole life as a police officer looking for concrete evidence, looking for things you can see and touch. I wondered for a bit, maybe I'm not really here. Maybe I'm in a nursing home, you know, with wires hooked up to me and I'm just imagining. I mean, I was really desperate. I'm thinking, maybe I'm not really here. I'm just sitting in a nursing home. I'm hallucinating and, and, you know, this kind of thing. I'm trying to think of some rational explanation for this because these things just don't happen. I had no idea what to do. The idea of me searching all those months for these paintings and not finding them in any of the books anywhere. To just stumble onto one on a trip in New Orleans, it way too big a coincidence to be a coincidence. It just was. It was just too big a coincidence to be one. But again, I had no idea how to respond to it. I was looking at the painting for several minutes, and I guess one of the salesmen saw me as a hot dog. <laughs> so in the corner, and he says, uh, this looked really nice for your fireplace, wouldn't it? And I'm thinking, sure. Picture a hunchback woman I don't know over my fireplace. Sure. So anyway, I said, who's the artist? I don't recognize the uh painting. I don't recognize the artist. He said, well, hang on a second. So we have a little bio on him. So he took me over to his desk and he pulled out. The man's name was J. Carroll Beckwith. Now, I had never heard of J. Carroll Beckwith. I had no idea who he was. But he had some interesting stuff on him. The fact that he, he was born in 1852 and died in 1917. And immediately hit me the word that I kept seeing the number 1917. I thought, well, Bob, that's just a coincidence. That's all it is. But then I found out that, number one, he had lived during a time period I thought it was, during the late 1800s. He, you know, and I found out also that he had had one of the number of wars during his life for his paintings. And I remembered the meeting I'd been to, the, like a big party where everybody's congratulating me and all this. And again, I'm trying to tell myself, Bob, quit it. You're getting carried away. Because I could feel myself getting carried away with this. And I, and I didn't want to believe in this stuff. I, no, come on. Come on. That's not so. But... When I left there, now I had some information. I put the case on the shelf, like we do murder cases that can't be solved, but now I had new information. I was going to take it off shelf. I knew who the artist was. So I thought I need to get back to Annapolis, find, look up this J. Carroll Beckwith, find out who in the world he is. Then I remember, oh yeah, I saw some exhibition here, you know, in Annapolis sometime, you know, two years ago, five years ago, what have you. But that didn't work out real well either, because I went to the library and I found out there was hardly any information at all. And all the art books, if you'd put it all together, it wouldn't have been a full page of information about Beckwith. It really wasn't. And the interesting part was that I kept finding these little confirmations. Nothing really big that would say it would prove it wrong or prove it right, but it's a little, little big confirmation. For example, he, when he died, I said I thought it was, it was kind of a brisk fall day. Well, I found he died in October. I said that he had died in a large city. Well, I found that he had died in New York City. These things kept, you know, he always wanted a little thing or another. Now, now I didn't know what to do. I had no idea what to do about this thing, but I knew that I had to keep investigating. Lay at the, at the NF Public Library told me, said, look, if you want some better information about Beckwith, go up to the Art Museum Library. They have a really nicely stocked library at the Art Museum on the north side of Annapolis. So I went up there and, and talked to the lady at the library, and she was very nice, but she really didn't have that much more information at the NF Public Library, except one thing. I noticed there was a little anecdote by Beckwith and John Singer Sargent. John Singer Sargent, most people who know American art know he's a very famous American painter. Well, it turns out that he and Beckwith were roommates for five years at art school in Paris. So, but interesting, the footnote on this little anecdote said this anecdote came from the diaries of J. Carroll Beckwith that are on file at the National Academy of Design in New York City. I thought, huh, I thought, boy, this will answer the question one way or the other. Because at this time, I was starting to feel really shaky. I felt like I was losing my grip on reality because I kept finding, like I said, these, these little bits of proof that kept proving that what I thought was true. But I thought, you know, how could I have known any of this stuff? Because there was, there was absolutely nothing about Beckwith. And all the books and all the library, there was hardly any information at all about him. Now, how could I know all this information about him? 
So I thought to myself right then, I got to get those diaries. I got to look at the diaries. Maybe this will answer the question for one or the other. So I went to the NF uh, Public Library and I found I had to do an interlibrary loan because actually, first of all, I called National Guy Design in New York and they said, no, no, these are very fragile. We don't loan them out. They said, but they are on a microfilm you can get them from the archives of American Arts Smithsonian. So I went back to the public library and basically ordered the interlibrary loan of the microfilm. They said, well, it'll be a couple weeks before you get it. I said, okay, good. So what I did during that time, I sat down and I listened to tape again, and I wrote down everything that I had said that could be proved or disproved. And I had about 28 different things I had said or, or seen during my regression with Beckwith that could be proved. And I thought, well, this would be good. But what I was looking for at that moment wasn't confirmation. I was looking for one thing that was completely wrong. For example, I had said we didn't have children. We should have children. My wife couldn't have children. Now, if he had children, then this whole thing is goofy. That's not true because you couldn't get something like that wrong about a past life. You couldn't say that you wanted to have children, but you couldn't because your wife couldn't and they actually have children. Then the whole thing's just, you know, it's not real. Or, for example, if he was a teetotaler, I saw him drinking wine in New York. If he's a teetotaler, then that would do it. So I was hoping for the diaries would show me this one, one fact that was completely opposite of what I had said. And then I could say, well, okay, this is goofy. It can't be real type thing. So anyway, I found 28 things. Finally, I got a call from the library. The diaries had come to Annapolis. So I went and looked at them. <laughs> and it turned out Beckwith was a really avid diary keeper. He started his diaries when he was uh, 19. His last entry is the day before he died, after he was 65. Turned out there was nine spools, about 17,000 pages of diary. What do you do with 17,000 pages? Is that interesting enough? He had also, I found, he'd also written an autobiography. And I thought, well, good. I'll read that first. You know, it was part of the microfilm too. But it turns out he started this in the spring of 1917, and he was already pretty sick. He died of endocarditis, which is an infection of the heart valves. And part of the symptoms are you'd be really tired. Because he, he got so bad last, he couldn't stand the paint and all this kind of thing. It was only uh, 23 pages long. He only got up to the age of 21 with his uh, autobiography. I thought, well, I kept thinking about and thinking about what am I going to do. So finally, what I ended up doing is I had hard copy made of this diary. That was pretty expensive, but I had to... I just had to do this. I really did. I had to solve this because it was driving me nuts. So I ended up having a hard copy made of the diary, all 17,000 pages. And it took me about a year. I read every single page of the diary. That's impressive. Yeah. Well, the interesting part was during my uh, read the diary, I kept finding one little confirmation. You know, nothing big in itself. But for example, I found that he didn't have any children, that at birth of his wife, had had a really serious miscarriage. They ended up 29 years to the day before Becca died. And after that, she couldn't have children, even though they wanted children. And I found the diary. He was a regular drinker. I thought maybe this drinking wine might be the thing to do it. But I had the impression, the late 1800s, men who drink, drink whiskey. But he explains in his diary that some people found odd that he drank wine, but he had developed a taste for that when he was in France. He was in France for five years at art school with John Sargent. And, and again, I kept finding these one little confirmations another. But I can never convince myself this is true. I kept thinking there's got to be something wrong here. But uh, at the very end of my regression, I had said she died of a blood clot. The doctor said she died of a blood clot. And I knew who this woman was. She was just immensely important to Beckwith because I wanted to cry. I felt so sad. Well, after reading his diaries and all the information I found, there's only two people that would have been his mother who really inspired his choice of being an artist in life. His dad was a wholesale grocer, and his dad thought, told him being an artist is the best way he knew of starving to death. 
His dad did not approve of it, did not want him to be an artist, and tried to discourage him. But his mother was very supportive of him. She brought him his first easel, paints, and all, and very supportive of him. And he just loved his mother dearly, or his wife, Bertha, which he also, he also loved dearly. So anyway, I, I'm, so I'm, reading, I'm reading the diary, reading the diary, and I'm keeping finding little confirmations. I'm thinking, there's got to be something wrong. You know? So finally, I get to, to December 5th, 1886 in his diary. He talked about his mother was in church that she died of a stroke caused by a blood clot. Wow. Now, you know, there's a lot of things you could guess. I mean, you could find a person's life. You could guess. You could guess some things about it. You really could. You could make the right guesses. You can't make guesses like this. It ended up at the very end, I was able to prove all 28 facts. Every, all 28 things I'd seen, I was able to prove they were real. Every one of them was valid, was the truth. There, I think the mother thing was the thing that threw me over the edge. Where are you going to find this information at? For a man who actually was very little recorded of him in his life, there's very little recorded by him that know what his mother died of. So it's not possible. So I didn't, I didn't know what to do. I mean, I think that was one that threw me over the edge. The mother, I had to realize, this is not made up, Bob. This is real. This is this man's life. You relive this man's life. Yeah, that's exactly it, isn't it? Because as you say, it was just so difficult to find anything about him. You might have been able to find his reason of death, although as you say, even that was recorded wrongly in some places. But to find his mother, I mean, who would be a complete unknown basically at the time, yeah. it's yes. incredible. It's just incredible stuff. I mean, again, I kept finding one after another, after another small confirmations, but the mother thing was the one that finally threw me over the edge where I thought, well, this is not imagination. It's not made up. There's no way you could know this. Yeah. I actually think too with the hunchback woman painting because when you first mentioned in the in the book and in your interview about the hunchback woman I thought who paints paintings of <laughs> hunchback yeah, yeah, women that, you know and I kind of I thought that might be the sticker but in actual fact that ended up being one of the really strong proving points which was yeah again time I saw it I thought you're making this up Bob I mean a portrait of a hunchback woman why yeah but so, so anyway so what happened is I suddenly realized after I went through the diary here that it could be really important that I probably need to go back to New Orleans. I wasn't going to buy it because I remember I think they wanted like $5,000 for the painting. Now, I wasn't going to pay $5,000, but I thought, well, I could go down and get a photograph of the painting and prove that it exists. Because the one thing to say it exists, but you got to be able to prove it. So what yeah. happened? I went down to, down to New Orleans to buy the painting, and I went where the art store was, and guess what? It's closed. They're out of business. <laughs> So I thought, well, can you get a policeman? What do you do? So I started canvassing other art diggers around the area to find out what happened to this person's paintings. And what happened to this, the paintings were in this art store. So I finally found the dealer who had bought the uh, stock from this art store. And I described painting to him. He said, yeah, we had it and I've sold it. And I said, oh. oh. I said, well, can I talk to the person who bought it and everything? And I found something really interesting about art dealers. Guard religiously the privacy of who their clients are for several reasons. Number one, they don't want everybody to know this person has hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars worth of artwork in their home. And number two, they don't want to share it with other art dealers who this person is buy these paintings. <laughs> so I try to explain to them, I don't want to do anything. I just want to get a picture of it to confirm that it existed. But so he said, okay, the only thing I can do, he said, I got a little card here. It's a pre-printed card. It says, put down your name, address, and phone number, and I'll send it to this person and tell them you're interested in that painting. And if they want to contact, they will. So I left that with them and never, ever heard from them. So now I'm kind of discouraged because, you know, it's one thing to say it existed, you got, but you got to prove it. Fortunately, when I, Beckwith's diary, when I got to the year 1912, here's three different mentions in his diary in 1912 about paying the portrait of a hunchback woman. Wow. So I, I figured, because otherwise I thought this, none of this stuff a whole water. If you, if you can't prove the painting exists, it's one thing to say it exists and, you know, you know it, but you have to prove it. 
And since I, since that person never contacted me about the painting, and I couldn't get a picture of it, but I was finally able to find it in his diary. And like I said, in 1912, he makes three different mentions of him painting a portrait of a hunchback woman. Wow, that's incredible, isn't it? It's, it's, it's lucky yeah. he was such a voracious diary keeper because otherwise you wouldn't have been able to prove a lot of the facts. Well, it sounded nice, but it'd be like a murder case, something, but you're lacking the key piece of evidence. And I'm sorry, it's not going to go without this key piece of evidence. Yeah, the having the gut feeling you're right, but not being able to prove it. When you saw um, the painting, you said that you had such a strong reaction to it. Do you still get that reaction if you come across a Beck with painting? It's kind of funny. While I was researching and writing the book about Beckwith, I had so many, we're talking dozens of little bizarre, not of the painting was a coincidence, just other little coincidences happened. Just things that are unlike the painting. These things in and by themselves would just be an interesting little coincidence. But when it gets to, you're getting talking dozens of them, it doesn't make sense. It really doesn't. But then interestingly, once the book was written and published, they stopped. Really? And I have, I, yeah, it just stopped completely. It's almost like a door shut, stopped completely. You know, so I didn't have any more coincidence happen, any more reaction. When I was went to Indianapolis Art Museum, they later told me they had some Beckley paintings in, the, in there. They had one on exhibit right then. So I went downstairs and I walked into the American artist room and I saw a picture there and I knew exactly it was Beckley's paintings. Now, now, how I knew that, I have no idea. It was uh, William Chase. William Chase is another famous American artist who instantly was good friends with Beckwith. Matter of fact, Beckwith helped support him when he was starting out as a painter. Beckwith loaned him money all the time to keep him going. Well, he had painted a portrait of William Chase. When I walked into the exhibit, I saw that painting. I knew exactly. I knew it. I could feel just a, something about the familiarity about the painting. But funny, since the time, since the Beckwith time, absolutely nothing has happened. And I, and I, and I, to me, that makes sense because I think my job on this whole thing was to investigate this and present what I've found, that I'm done. Because people a lot of time ask me, are you trying to convince people to change your belief, to become a believer? And I don't, not my job. I don't, people don't want to believe it, that's fine. People want to believe it, fine, if they don't want to believe it. But it's not my job to try and convert people or trying to sway people to suddenly believe this. My job was simply to investigate this and basically report my findings. And then again, like I said, once this, once this was over, once the book's printed, absolutely nothing happened. It just stopped like a door shutting on me. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I've been doing a bit of research on reincarnation because I'm fascinated. It's amazing how often that happens, that once uh, you get like a lot of kids who are born who have memories of, you know, when they're toddlers and quite often they're really traumatic memories and they'll have like disturbing nightmares and all sorts of traumatic feelings regarding it. But it seems to be that once they actually sort of face it head on and sort of look at it and, and accept that this is what it is and that it actually happens, they get a form of closure and it just sort of almost stops. It just sort of, that all of that pain just sort of goes away, which is quite an interesting thing because not that I'm saying with you you needed it for closure but I think as a police officer it must have been very difficult for you to have something like that coming up that's just so unbelievable and so difficult to kind of reconcile in your mind so it must yeah. have been a bit like being having an unsolved case I suppose well it did it drove me nuts for a while it really did drove me nuts the regression session was so vivid so realistic that I had to feel it had some importance there had to be importance to it somehow and it just drove me nuts that I couldn't solve this case because I felt like this case was solvable, but I couldn't find that one piece of evidence. Of course, going to New Orleans took that. Now, it's interesting enough, my wife, as I told you, was also a police officer. And I finally told her about everything I was doing. She thought I was nuts. She really did. She really thought I'd lost a few screws here. I was nuts. So, <laughs> interesting enough, 
I told, so I said, no, hang on a minute. Hang on, let me explain everything. Let me show you everything I found. So I told her everything I'd done and found. And she told me, she said, no, Bob, this is something you've seen in a movie, you've seen in a book, you just don't remember it. And she said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. So I'll go out, I'll find some stuff on Beckwith. I'll find out exactly where you know this stuff from. And actually, I was kind of glad to hear this. My wife was a really excellent detective. And the problem about police work, especially in homicide, one of the things I kept telling my detective in homicide, don't become emotionally involved in your cases. Do not become emotionally involved. Because you become emotionally involved in your cases, you lose perspective. You get tunnel vision when you get emotionally involved. And believe me, I was really emotionally involved in this case. So I felt one to have another person, an outside person who had no interest in this case, no connection to it, to look at the same things I look at and see if they could find something I had maybe overlooked, something I hadn't, some link or something I hadn't seen. So my wife went out and um, it took her about a month and she finally came back and basically said, I can't find nothing. She didn't find anything more than I did. Regardless of that, I was talking to her what we should do about this case. And she was dead set, just 100% against me doing anything with it. She said, Bob, take us to your grave. She said, believe me, police captains don't talk about this sort of thing, but it'll end bad for you. And she was just dead set against me writing this book. She really was. I was quite interested that you actually did stay captain still for quite a long time after writing the book, didn't you? you? You were still captain for 10 years or more? This happened in 1992. The book didn't come out in 1999. I settled on this for quite a while. Actually, I'd finished my investigation about 1994. So I settled on this for a number of years before I did anything about it. I really feared my wife was right, that this might not end up well for me. Mm. And actually, interesting enough, my agent at the time, my literary agent at the time, also told me this might affect your writing career. All my books had been about police procedure. I'd written books about, you know, crime prevention, about stopping stalkers, about SWAT teams, uh, finding missing persons, this kind of thing. Every very police procedure books. And she said, this might hurt your ability to sell another book if you buy a book like this compared to your other books. Right. So, so I had her warn me against it. I had my agent warn me against me too. Did that happen to be the case? Yeah, I did real big time. And eventually I had decided, made my wife is right. So anyway, we had a police officer who was killed in line of duty. At this time, I was writing a lot of articles for police magazines too. And I was going to write an article about line of duty deaths, of how police departments cope with them, what they do. So I interviewed this police captain, who's a good friend of mine. And uh, she she happened to have been the first officer to see this officer being killed. And so I went to interview her about this article. And then we started talking. She's talking about having an out-of-body experience. She said she'd but the first person was seen, and she got there, and the officer was laying there. He actually was dead. She knew he'd been shot in the shotgun in the chest. And she said at that moment, though, she realized she didn't know where the shooter was. And she realized she was in real danger. She said all of a sudden she found herself up above looking down to scene. And the funny thing about that, I couldn't believe it. She told me this because, again, I had never heard too much Type, this type of talking to the police officers. And, and she's listening to the police captain. And she told me the story. And I'm listening to her. And she didn't seem to have any worry about telling it. But, of course, she's telling it to another police officer. So I, you know, I took it all down. So it wasn't a month or so later, I'm in federal court with a bunch of officers. We were waiting to testify. Of course, they don't let the witnesses be in the courtroom. You had to be separated before they could testify. We were all sitting in this other room, but we're all talking about police work and everything. And this other police captain tells a story about him and his partner was in his drugstore. And a guy came over and said, hey, they're holding up the supermarket next door. So they run over the supermarket next door. And sure enough, there's about three or four holding men holding it up. And anyway, the captain, he went in again with his gun out and everything. And then one of the guys said, it's a cop, kill him. He said at that moment, he said he was really scared. He said he had an out-of-body experience. He said he saw himself above the store in the parking lot. And he said at the moment, he thought maybe he had died. And he was just reliving what had happened. Wow. He said he had an out-of-body experience watching this whole situation go down. And I thought, this is unusual to hear this twice. 
and it might matter for a month or so. This is really unusual. So anyway, so I, I kind of took that all in too. And later, I'd heard some gossip around the police department, but some officers got a call to a house where objects were moving on their own. Well, I thought, no. Is that, you know, the house will possess it. No. So I called one of the guys in, and I got my closed doors and told him I wouldn't tell anybody, tell me what happened. Told me to him, the other officers with this house, and the objects just fly off the shelf and smash. Didn't know what to do. They had no idea what to do. He said that family was just crazy. They didn't know what was going on. They thought the house was haunted. He said they had it like there was a, a boom box, a great big, you know, like a radio thing you used to carry on your shoulder years ago. He said it just flew off a shelf and it flashed on the floor. He said a couple of vases would fly down and break. And he had no idea. They finally they called in a Catholic priest. I didn't realize that every diocese has a priest that specializes in taking care of things like this. He came there and did some kind of ceremony with the house and quiet and quieted it down. He said it stopped. They had no idea that was true. They said him and the old four officer, the other the other three officers got together. And they said, we ain't telling nobody about this. We ain't going to talk about this. Everybody think we're nuts. He said the family there begged him, don't, please don't say anything about this. Because they had started a parade to their house and people wanted to come visit the house and see things. Yeah. So after after I heard this story, I thought, well, come on. If these guys can tell a story, I can certainly tell my story. And that's when I decided to go ahead and just go ahead and write the book. I, so I went ahead and wrote the book and sent off to my to send off to be published. I'm glad you did because it's an incredible story, but it must have been a very difficult to make that decision. Are well, you sorry that you did in the end? or It, it was a difficult decision because it turned out just as bad as, as, as everybody predicted it would. Uh, my career would come to a dead stop in the police department. It really did. It come wow. to, because I was, I was considered a rising star. The, the head of homicide is probably the most prestigious job in the police department. Everybody wants to be the head of homicide. And I got it. And I was already going places from there. After my book come out, my career come to a dead stop and did it never did recover as my agent had warned me it took me another like five years before i get another book published really it, it, yeah so just it ended just as bad as everybody had predicted it would and i feared it would too i really did when i published this book it just seemed to me the the vividness of the regression and everything i'd found and especially the finding of the painting in new orleans this was just too big a story to, to keep to myself this i felt it's a story need to be shared with people I really did. I feel like I need to share this with people, especially after hearing other officers talk about events they had experienced, which are obviously paranormal. I thought, I can do it too. The difference being, of course, the other officers only told other police officers. They had never told the public about these events, and I was telling the public. It did. It turned out bad, as I thought it would. I think in some ways it's interesting that you as a police officer were the person this happened to because it meant that you've actually sort of brought it out to the, to the public forum to look at. Fear stops a lot of people doing things in their lives, and it's because they're afraid of consequences and they're afraid of this and that. Awful lot of people are scared of other people thinking they're crazy. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting, you know. Now, the rank and file of the police department really took it pretty well. I had probably 20 officers or more come to me. Of course, they look over the shore, make sure everybody can hear them, and say, you know, I always believe this. Said, I'm really glad you did it. I really, I'm really glad you did this. Yeah. I'm surprised how many of the rank and file officers really supported my book. Now, like I said, the chief's staff didn't support it, but... Off the mode, a lot of the rank and file really did support it. They're actually probably relieved that you did it because as you, you've discovered that a lot of them have had experiences like this and just feel too shy or ashamed or whatever about actually talking about it. But you know, the interesting part is I had never heard any of these stories until after I decided not to write this book. Now you think I'd have heard these stories before. Is this kind of funny? These three stories come up within a month or two of each other. And all at once I'm hearing these stories around the police. And I found out checking around the police room, there's a lot of policemen who've had paranormal experiences because particularly the out-of-body experience usually only comes when a person's under tremendous stress, mm -hmm. under real mm -hmm. stress. 
And it happens a lot in police work. And police work, you're quite often put under tremendous stress. And I found that not just the two I talk about, but a number of other police officers have had some very similar experiences. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? It's because that's the sort of the first thing that you hear of in a near-death experience is that feeling of floating up out of your body. It's almost like there's a kind of a, some sort of a trigger that we go through when we're about to die or are in a stressful situation that seems to trigger it. And it's almost like a protective measure. So you're not having to actually face what your body is dealing with at that particular time. Mm-hmm. It's, quite inter- it's quite interesting. I find the whole, yeah. and that's what I mean about, I think it's important to talk about because maybe if we could talk about it, we might find that a lot of this isn't actually necessarily paranormal, but it's just the natural process of, of living in these bodies. That, and this is life. But people are still scared of other people thinking they're weird. And yeah. you want people want you, you want other people to think you're normal. People are scared. Truth, I'm really glad I did. I mean, it, it ended my career, but I don't know. This isn't me. This is too important a story just to keep to myself. It's just, it, I'd had too many bizarre coincidences, too many times information had just fallen into my lap. For example, yes. uh, Beckwith in his diary kept talking about, I'm working on my scrapbooks. I'm working on my scrapbooks tonight. I never could find out where the scrapbooks were at. So again, this is a very important piece of information. I need to find it. So I, I was talking one time to a person who specialized in American art. And I was talking about, I was trying to find the painting of the Hunchback Woman. I want to know if she knew where it was and everything. We were talking, and just out of blue, she said, you know his uh, scrapbooks are at the uh, historical site in New York City, don't you? I didn't ask her about it or anything. She just blurted it out all of a sudden, and I didn't. I don't want that's why I had to go and actually go to New York City to look at his scrapbooks. But again, any information like it's just you know, literally dumped in my lap. And it's, wow. it's just, it seemed to me like this is something, this is a story that needed to be told. I think you're right. I really do think that that's, that's the kind of the whole point of it, I, that we might actually understand things a little bit better if we can open ourselves up to concepts that might be strange or scary or, or not seem logical. It's quite interesting. You mentioned with James Carroll Beckwith that in your book that he's, uh, he was a bit of a mean-spirited and a greedy kind of person and you didn't really actually necessarily like some of the aspects of, of his character. You actually share some of his traits in that you're both very driven men and that you're both very productive. Um, do you feel that you've any of his positive traits or that, that that has come through in your life now? I don't know. Uh, Beckwith, like I said, he, was, he wasn't terribly likable. I mean, he, I mean, number one, he was really ungrateful, man. His dad had paid for him to go to art school, spent five years in France at art school, had paid for it all. Later in life, his dad kept some financial difficulties and asked Beckwith for a loan. He wouldn't, he wouldn't do it. Oh, you're joking. Yeah, he wouldn't, he wouldn't do it. And I thought, my God, how ungrateful. Then worse mm-hmm. than that, his mother, I told you, he loved his mother dearly, just loved her dearly. When mm-hmm. he found she died, at that moment, he was doing two portraits. And this didn't happen very often in his life, believe me. Didn't, his diary is just full of whining and crying about not having enough money, not getting enough work and what have you. So at that moment, his mother died. He was doing two portraits. So rather than go to her funeral, he, went, he stayed home and did the portraits instead. You're joking I mean, me. Yeah, he really? was, like I said, he wasn't he wasn't a terribly likable person. He really wasn't. And I, wow. so I found it hard to feel any kind of relationship with him. I mean, and I hate to think I was that kind of person, but that's just the way he was. I mean, he was not grateful. He wasn't really a, you know that nice a person at times. But on the flip side, Beckwith, I told you that he had endocarnitis. For the last couple of years of his life, he got so weak he couldn't stand to paint anymore. He couldn't stand to diesel. So he decided he'd be a writer. And he actually wrote some things that got published and everything. And I thought it was kind of interesting. That the only thing I wanted to be from my earliest age of four and five, I'd always told everybody I wanted to be a writer. That's all I ever wanted to be. I never wanted to be any, didn't want to be a cowboy or astronaut or anything little boys want to be. I wanted to be a writer. 
Wow, now, that's I think, interesting. Like, interesting. And he what he decided to do at the very last before he died, and then that's that was the only thing I ever wanted to be. And so I think if anything has passed on, it'd probably be that. Yeah, because it's interesting that in two of your lives now, you've actually gone for very creative processes. So I thought that too. I wondered if you if it made you spur on towards writing in this life, because the last thing he was doing was writing. I'm not sure. I just it's something that's always been my. It's always been ever since like my earliest memories. I've wanted to be a writer, and you know it, that was my my whole life's goal was to be a writer, forever. I, like I said there's a lot of you know you talk a little. You're a little boy, separate. What do little boys say? You want to be a cowboy? You want like I said you want to be a race car driver or something like that. But I know always the only thing I ever wanted to be was a writer. Wow, that's amazing, isn't it? It's incredible to think that that you've carried it through. So you also mentioned too one thing that was fascinating with the story about the uh, the stepdaughter. I was quite interested with that, and you were saying that you gave her away in the past life, and you felt a lot of guilt about it. You felt really bad about it, and then you said in your book that you actually, or I think you actually mentioned it even now, that you recognised her as being your stepdaughter in this life, and that's actually a common thing in a lot of the reincarnation things I've found. They they often talk about people who are in the past that are actually living in their life this life with them now and there's they believe that they sort of almost have like a posse that you kind of you, know, you go through these experiences with and it's funny that people who actually don't have um, people around them that they recognize often have sort of made the point that they feel like this time they've gone out and done it on their own and there's a there's a feeling of being disconnected and being lost so it's interesting that you remember her from from the past but do you think because you had such a traumatic experience of feeling that feeling of abandoning her that you've been given a second chance now because she's your stepdaughter in this life i do because here's enough when i gave her away she was the same age she was the same as she was when i married her mother i thought about that a lot because she was the exact same as she age she was when I when I when I married her mother as she was when I gave her away in that life. And it was just wow. kind of funny during the during the regression. I mean, I it felt like a concrete block in my chest. I've never felt so. I felt so guilty. Just yeah, you because know, I knew I was lying to Dr. Griffith and I was lying when I was saying how good it was to give her away and how this was a real honor for her and how she'd be happy there. But I knew what I was doing and I was abandoning her and I felt this terrible, terrible, crushing guilt. And I've thought about it. So I've thought about it a lot. Yeah, I have to think, you have to think that's, this is my second, this is my second chance to make up for abandoning her last time. Yeah, it seems to be people who have like, it's different for you because you kind of found it through aggression, but for people who remember it, it's often because of the trauma of the emotion that they've gone through in that life. And I find that people, when they talk about their um, past lives, there's often, it's, it's the strong emotion that's really attached to it that is the, the thing that really brings the memories through really clearly. It's almost like we get a form of PTSD if we have unfinished business in the past and then we bring it forth. And that maybe that's why we some people can remember them because it's almost like that PTSD kind of stops the block that we obviously all bring through to the next life. Stops I've given a lot of thought. And that's the only thing I can come up with. I mean, it's, it's just interesting the way the, everything corresponded. So I, I, I have given that a lot of thought. And I think mm. that's what I think, I think I was given a second chance. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think you might've been too. I actually quite like James Carroll Beckwith's paintings. Actually. I think they're lovely. Um, do you feel any kind of pride or feeling of ownership towards them in this life? Do you yeah. actually like them or? <laughs> Beckwith was not, it was not a great painter by any stretch. He may, Interesting enough, I, uh, this is really interesting. I talk about all these little coincidences that happened when I was writing the book. So anyway, I'm trying to find the uh, Hunchback Woman painting. I'm trying to find about it. So I'm uh, going down visiting various art galleries, trying to see if they know before I actually found where it went to. You know, I went to a number of art galleries to see if they knew where it was. And 
And so anyways, eventually I got a phone call from a lady in New York. She worked at the Berry Hill Gallery, which is a very upscale art gallery in New York City. And she said, I hear you've been searching for some Beckwith paintings. And I said, yes, I have. And she said, well, have you found them? many of them? And I, I had found some of them Beckwith paintings I had. And I said, yeah, I found why? She says, well, we're having an exhibition of Beckwith's work. And interesting enough, it was opening the very same day my book was coming out. The oh, very same like day. <laughs> Again, it's one of these little interesting coincidences, just coincidence. And yeah. I asked her, I says, uh, why? I said, why are you doing a Beckwith? I said, his stuff has never gone for more than a couple thousand dollars, forever. It's never really sold for anything. And she said, you know, I don't really know. So it seemed like somebody brought it up a couple years ago. It seemed like a good idea. I'm not sure why we're doing it. Wow. So, yeah. Okay. So, so I went to New York. But I went to see this exhibition. Interesting enough, it ran for 30 days. They didn't sell a single painting. Yes, he's not that good. Beckwith, Beckwith is competent. Now, if you want a portrait painted, he usually charged between seven fifty and a thousand dollars to paint a portrait, and he, and he would do a competent portrait for you. Now, his buddy, his old roommate, John Singer Sargent, he charged twenty five thousand dollars, and had a waiting list. William <laughs> Chase, his good friend, he would charge five or six thousand. Beckwith, the most he ever got paid is that uh, John Singer Sargent uh, painted one of the Vanderbilts. I don't know, I'm not sure why, but back in those days, whenever you made a portrait of someone, they had a lesser artist make two copies of the painting. Oh, really? I don't, know, I don't know why. Well, anyway, the sergeant, they were lifelong friends, talked Vanderbilt into hiring Beckwith to make the copies. And he oh. got $1,000 per copy. And that was the most he ever made on a painting in his life. And his paintings still haven't really sold for anything. They're competent paintings. If you were a person who didn't want to spend $25,000 for a sergeant portrait, you could go to Beckwith and you get a competent portrait for a thousand bucks. His just didn't have the same fatality in life that other people did. He simply wasn't that good. And I have enough people ask me, say, okay, why would they want to save his diaries? Why would they care? I'll tell you the reason why. Here's enough. Beckwith was a real social butterfly in his days. He lived in New York most of his adult life and he knew everybody. Of course, good friends with John Sargent. He, he, he knew Sarah Bernhardt, the actress. He had good friends of hers. Oscar Wilde. When Oscar Wilde came to America to visit, he stayed with Beckwith in Beckwith's apartment when he came to America. He was next door neighbors to Mark Twain. Mark Twain lived in Connecticut, but they both had summer homes up in the Catskill Mountains. They were wow. next door neighbors up there. And he knew he knew Mark Twain real well. He knew Teddy Roosevelt real well. He knew Claude Monet. So his diary is full of little anecdotes. After I wrote this book, I had a lady call me. She was writing a book on Mark Twain. And she said, I understand you read Beckwith's diaries. She said, are there any anecdotes in her about Mark Twain? I looked at it so much as it would take me forever to find them. When I went through the diaries, I had marked each page. I had highlighted them and I had put tabs on each page to what it was. So I was able, I knew where to find that kind of thing. The village they lived in in the Catskills was a dry village. Now, Mark Twain and Beckwith both were drinking men. They both liked to drink. There's a story about there'd be a, they'd go to a play and during intermission, they'd both sneak out and run to Beckwith or his house to get a drink type thing. That's why they kept in diaries. He's got little anecdotes about Claude Monet. He's got anecdotes about uh, Teddy Roosevelt. He's got anecdotes about Oscar Wilde that people find interesting and that give some life to these people. He wasn't anybody famous, but researchers use his diary all the time to find anecdotes on other people who were famous. Wow, that's amazing. It sounds like there's a book in that, actually. <laughs> mm. Almost, anyway. So that's quite fascinating. I never realized that he knew so many famous people. And also, too, as you make the point, it's interesting to be able to look at the life of someone, just anyone from that time, and to have that much of a record of someone's day-to-day -day life, in a way. And, you know, that's one of the bad things about reading the person's diary. 
you get almost too much insight into this person. I'll tell you, Beckwith's diary is filled with whining. He whined constantly about not having enough work, not having money. But actually, interesting enough, at the end of his life, he was very well off financially. He really was. He owned a summer home in the Catskills. Wife and him to go to spend the summer in Europe. He was actually pretty well off. But you listen to his diary, you think he was a pauper. He just whined throughout his diary about not getting enough work, not getting enough. And he really resented other artists who made a lot more money than him. He really did. Yeah, the problem about reading a person's diary is you get to know, you get to know maybe a little too well because your diaries are your innermost thoughts and feelings. Interesting enough, you were talking about these little coincidences that happen. Okay, there's another one of these little interesting coincidences that happen. But just again, it's something interesting. Now, Beckwith in his diary, he only talked about two women other than his wife who he thought were really physically attractive women. One was a Miss Wolf and one was a Miss Morgan. Matter of fact, Miss Morgan, he had erased part of what he said about her. I don't know. I think he was afraid his wife would read it or something. But he found her very physically attractive. He found Miss Wolf very physically attractive. Now, I've been married twice. My first wife's name when I when I married her was Morgan. My second wife's name when I married her was Wolf. You're joking me. You know, and see again. So. Now this again, this by by the end of the end of itself, this yeah. is just an interesting little coincidence. But when you add them, like keep adding them up, and you keep, you keep getting them over and over and over, you think one coincidence is just nothing. When you get yeah. dozens, it's like, no, no, this is silly. You know, there's, yeah. something, there's something going on here. But that's what I mean about it. It's interesting that you were the one who ended up, because the whole thing, when you look at the whole way through, the fact that you read Raymond Moody's book right at that point, and then a few months later when it's still in your mind, you talk to the psychologist at the party, she dares you. Like the whole thing, when you look at it, the whole story all the way through, is a series of coincidences. Like this story really shouldn't have ever come out. One slip of one of those coincidences, and it probably wouldn't have. And yet it does. Well, yeah, you know, with police officers, we don't really believe in coincidences because anytime we find an in investigating a case, if you find something looks like a starting coincidence, 99 times 100, it's not. It's something someone did. But, you know, in my case, you think about that, you think it's like finding the pain in Orleans. Okay, who could have made this coincidence happen? And that's a scary thought, too. Who could have made it happen? It says like somebody else could have done this or so some higher power obviously done this, had done this to make this happen. And that's kind of a scary thought that, you're, you know, one of those things, there's so many coincidences. And I really don't believe in coincidences, but they just kept happening. They kept happening over and over. Yeah, in a way, maybe the reason why people are starting to do podcasts and things about it is because it is time to talk about these things. Well, I, I, I really, really felt like I was guided. Like you said, too many things fell in line. Too many times I had information dumped in my lap. It was just, yeah. let me tell you, let me tell you, I got one more little coincidence I thought was kind of startling. Uh, Beckwith in his diary said he was born at nine o'clock in the morning while his dad was out hunting with a friend. Well, I had a lady who did astrology, okay? Now, I'm, I don't believe in astrology. I really, of course, I wouldn't believe in reincarnation either, but I did not believe in astrology. But anyway, she said, okay, you say that Beckwith was born at nine o'clock in the morning. Do you know when you were born, what hour you were born? I was like, she'd like to run you know, uh, astrological charts on both of us. So I got my birth certificate and I looked, there's no time on it, just a day and everything. So I found one person left a family who might've known. And I asked, do you know what time I was born? And I told you, Beckwith said he was born at nine when his dad's out hunting with a friend. And she said, yeah, you were born about nine o'clock. Your dad's out hunting with your uncle. And it's one of those things. Really? Yeah, like, yeah. It's like in, in itself, it means nothing. I mean, in itself, it's just interesting. But when you <laughs> couple with all these other things, it just, Wow. That is so free. Come on, come on. Yeah. It's almost creepy. It's like, come on. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, again, I had dozens of these things happen. Just a little bizarre coincidences. But again, funny enough, once the book was published, they stopped. I haven't had one since. 
Wow. It's almost like you were spurred to write the book. Like, you know, keep going, keep going, keep going. You'll get what you want if you just keep going kind of thing. Because yeah. a lot of people yeah. would go, oh, I can't find anything on him. I'm going to give up. You yeah, know? exactly. But it, again, it also, this is, it was the police detective, too. It just drove you crazy knowing yeah. there's a case here and you, you can't solve. Most techies really hate that. When you yeah. get a case, think you should solve. It looked like an easy case at first. It should be easy to solve, and it's not. And it drives you nuts. Yeah, I can I can imagine that. I, as I say, I like true crime, and number of times you've seen stories where a case hasn't been solved for 20 years, but the police officer has just not been able to let it drop, and they've kept it in their mind even sometimes after they retire, you know, just yeah. trying to bring it to the truth. So it's quite interesting. So there's one last final question that I'll let you go because I've kept you for so long, but I've just loved this. It's been great. Thank you so much. You said that you actually went and visited Beckwith's grave and that you felt a very strong feeling when you went to visit it. What was the sort of the feeling you're feeling? Was it panic or was it fear or what do you think you felt? Well, I was in New York when I was doing research on my book. I had to go to New York. This is a major piece of evidence. You couldn't look at it without doing the scrapbooks. So then also I tried to visit all the places Beckwith had talked about in his diaries, but yeah, they were all gone. Everything, everything has changed. You know, like the hotel where he died at is now a park, and this guy, all the buildings are different. But I knew that he'd been buried in Kensico Cemetery, which is in Valhalla, New York, which is north of New York City. And, you know, you think about it, I, I thought, you know, how many people get a chance to visit their own grave? You know, <laughs> it's one of those things. But at the same time, I kept thinking, you know, I, I don't know, it's just should I or shouldn't I? So anyway, I got all my research done. I had a day left. So I actually took, uh, went down to Grand Central Station and took a train up to uh, Valhalla, New York, to visit the cemetery. Kensico Cemetery, by the way, is a, just a beautiful, it's a huge, beautiful cemetery. It's got all kind of famous people buried there. I went to the office and asked them where the Beckwith buried at, and they gave me a map. And so I started walking to his grave, and I found it. It was funny enough, I could see the grave. When I got close to it, I had this terrible anxiety attack. Now, when I was a rookie officer, and I get into a dangerous situation. I always had these, my hands are just full of electricity. My left knee would start shaking. It, it was just something that happened to me every time I got, when I was a rookie, before I, you know, before I really experienced it, you know, knew what to do, I, my left knee would shake and my hands are electricity. I'm standing there, my knee is going crazy and my hands are just full of electricity as I'm staying next to the grave. And I thought, this is silly. What, what do you got to be scared of? There could be no ghosts here because you were part of this person. His spirit's in you. But I couldn't help it. I could not stop it. I wanted to get a picture of me at the grave to prove I wasn't scared. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I saw some people, some employees uh, doing some, cutting some hedges close by. So I left the grave to have them come take a picture of me standing at the grave to show how brave I was, to show I wasn't scared. But it's funny. Once I got away from the grave, it stopped. No tingling, no knee shaking. So I asked them to take my picture. So went back to the grave. Once I got next to the grave, it started all up again. And I could not stop it. And it took this guy forever to take this picture. Oh, that drive me nuts. I'm sitting there, I'm, I'm trying to get my knees to stop shaking. And I'm trying, and my hands are just full of electricity. And I had this terrible anxiety attack. People ask me why. I have no idea. Apparently, this is not something you're supposed to do. And I have no idea why. I mean, there's nothing ever bones of a man who I used to be. I just assume you aren't supposed to do this. Maybe, maybe it's something like your soul itself was sort of feeling uh, some kind know. of weird quake about it or something i suppose it would be strange know. almost like a doppelganger thing for for it maybe i don't know it's weird isn't it it's interesting yes. though it is really really interesting as has been this incredible conversation i must thank you so much for doing this it's been really amazing I've, i found your story fascinating when i first came across it and i love it to pieces now still so thank you so much for coming 
to, to okay. talk to me today. And I can honestly say to your readers, I hope uh, some of my listeners pick up some of your books to have a look at because they're all amazing reads. And, uh, you know, the true crime stuff is fabulous too, if you're interested in that. So you should uh, go on to Amazon and support Robert because he, he's a great writer. It's been an amazing experience. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. And I would like to thank you for listening to Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited. We hope you enjoyed this case. If you have any interesting stories about reincarnation or if you can relate your own past life experiences, I'd love to hear about them. And I can be reached by email on reincarnationplr at gmail.com or through my website reincarnationplr.com. If you'd like to keep up to date on my latest podcast posts, you can find me on Facebook under Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited or on Twitter and Instagram under ReincarnationPLR. We'll be back again soon with another episode, but until then, remember you are unique and your life has a purpose. Mm-hmm.